What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Carbide Podcast and our second in the Behind the Brand series. Working in the power sports industry my whole career, I've always loved chatting with people in different areas of the industry and learning all about what they face, the do's and don'ts, and everything in between. The apparel space is extremely competitive and in a lot of ways is one of the more crucial product lines anyone can carry. You're probably numb to it at this point in time if you're a long-time enthusiast, but cold hands, cold feet, a fogged-up shield or goggles, these can make or break any riding experience and can be responsible for turning someone on or off to the sport of snowmobiling. Dustin Pancari not only plays a major role in one of the most well-known apparel brands in the power sports world, but he's also been in the snowmobile industry for almost 30 years. So he's got a great perspective on the evolution of the sport from a technical standpoint, marketing standpoint, and just the overall landscape of it. Without delaying any further, let's jump into it and go behind the brand of Climb. And welcome back, everybody, to the Carbide Podcast. Appreciate you guys tuning in once again. On the line tonight, power sports industry professional. He spent time with SLP, Snowtech, as well as numerous roles within the Teton Outfitters Group. And his current title is Senior Associate Marketing Manager for Climb, Mr. Dustin Pancari. How are we doing, Dustin? Hey, I'm great. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. I, uh, I appreciate you joining me on the call tonight. I really wanted to dive into a, an apparel brand that I think Climb is going to be an awesome discussion. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the invite. It's awesome to be a part of this stuff and, and uh, get to chat with guys like you. So thanks for the invite. For sure, for sure. So let's kind of go into your background a little bit and kind of growing up. So where did your passion for snowmobiling really start, if you can go back that far? Yeah, wow. It's it's kind of a, a little bit of a progressive road. I When I was a kid, I was just enamored with anything power sports. Um, grew up in a farming community. Most of my family farmed and we had power sports on the farm. That was kind of a way of life, you know, as far as motorcycles to go from field to field and snowmobiles to go out and check you know the cellars where the potatoes were in the winter and just you know it was kind of a family thing to go snowmobiling but um yeah i just i wanted to ride anything i could swing a leg over i was just fascinated by it and uh, my dad had raced motocross when i was a little kid and i remember watching him just wheelie through the front yard and across the field on his old cz and i thought man I so want to learn how to do that bad. And, um, <laughs> I just, I got hooked and I, and it just became mm-hmm. kind of all I really cared about. I didn't so much care about, you know, basketball or sports or fishing or hunting. And a lot of my family did all those things, but I just gravitated to anything with a motor that I could ride. I, I wanted to, to be involved in it somehow. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> It's kind of funny. You're definitely not the first and you won't be the last uh, Idaho guy who is a potato farmer that fell in love with snowmobiling. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a trend. I mean, it's like construction guys and farmers because they've got the winter yep. slowing down a little bit, right? And so a lot of the pro hill climb guys and snowcross and, you know, they come from a construction background or a farm background. And it's, it's a good fit. And yeah, for me, um, uh, farming was what our family knew. And so a lot of them snowmobiled. So, mm-hmm. so 
you clearly enjoyed it and it became a passion for you really early on, but did you kind of know you wanted to chase it as kind of a career path or was it just a hobby that you really enjoyed growing up? You know, I, my dream was to make it a career and I, and I didn't know how I was going to do it. And I, and I, to be honest with you, I, I didn't even think it was possible. I kind of had this almost kind of fairy tale dream point of view oh, yeah. with it. Like, man, I, I would love to work for a magazine. I would love to be the test guy in the photo. I, I would love to be a test writer, but you know, dang it, my family's farmers and I, it's just probably not in the cards for me. And so kind of in the back of my mind, I kind of almost didn't know if it was a reality. And um, mm -hmm. it took, it, I guess, by accident, for lack of a better way to describe it, if if I was, if, if a door opened for me, I just walked through it, not knowing where it was going to go, but knowing that I wanted to try something. My dad was buddies with the guy that owned the local speed shop at the time, which was SLP starting line products. They were, they were, they were buddies. And so he got me a job early on <clears throat> working in the winters at starting line. And in the summers I'd, I'd hung out around the Honda shop and I bugged him and bugged him and bugged him until they finally gave me a job. And so I, I guess persistence paid off at that point. I finally got the, the owner of the shop to let me wash his bike. And I did that two or three times until he finally hired me. And he's like, okay, <laughs> you can start tomorrow, <laughs> you know? Um, so kind of that annoying little kid uh, uh, kind of started to make his dreams come true. And I, so I, I really did want it bad and I was willing to do whatever I had to do, but I, I didn't know if it was a reality until I got a little older and, and, and kind of started to make, make a few inroads, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so there was, there was some persistence, but there was some, there was some luck there too. It is funny. You ask a lot of, a lot of enthusiasts that work in the power sports space. And that's, it's kind of like a, a generic question of like, how did you get here? And a lot of us, frankly, couldn't even tell you, you just look back and you're like, huh, well that worked out and that worked out and that worked out. And here I am. Like, it's kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's really true. And, and I mean, it kind of sounds a little I don't know, childish to, to, to say it this way, but um, I would take my dad's magazines. He had dirt bike magazines, dirt rider magazines. And I would tear out every, every full page picture, you know? So like mm -hmm. if they were testing a new bike and the opening to the article was a full page action shot, like I would take that and I would carefully pull it out of the magazine and I would put it on my wall and I would line them up in rows. So eventually my room, you couldn't see the wallpaper. You couldn't see the ceiling. You couldn't see the <laughs> wallpaper because all it was was these action photos of magazines. And occasionally I would go into like the local skidoo dealer, you know, and they would like give me a poster or something, you know. And so I'd have bigger mm -hmm. posters over here and then little magazine shots. And I remember kind of laying in my bed at night with the light on looking at all these shots. And I thought, man, man, that, that's how would it be to be that guy? in that photo oh yeah like how cool would it be to be a to test dirt bikes for a living you know man that would be i wish that could be me i don't know i just you know <laughs> those guys oh they're fast they ride a lot i farm i can't you know you just in the back of my mind it really wasn't a reality mm -hmm. um, it's like i said that fairy tale but but yeah i mean i i just i did whatever i had to do to become involved and eventually I got to help with the magazine and I, and I got to, I got to be that guy. So it was kind mm -hmm. of a dream come true.
So I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and start talking about some some climb topics if you're open to it. And you know, you've spent spent a lot of years at climb in various roles. So I know you you know quite a bit of the history. But what are kind of the origins of climb as a brand? Like, what's the what's the stump speech of of how climb came to be? Well, it, you know, you go back to the beginning, 1998, and our founder Justin Summers. Um, He's kind of like he's kind of one of those guys that you hear about with all these with big successful companies. He's a very motivated mm-hmm. person. He's a very passionate person. He's he's extremely intelligent. Uh, he's an all in type of guy. Everything he does, mm-hmm. he does big. He does aggressive. Um, he he kind of he, he he doesn't take no for an answer. I mean, he just he knows how to make things happen. And so you know, in the beginning, he was in college and. Uh, he'd, he'd spent some time over in Taiwan and learned Mandarin Chinese and made some connections over there. Um, and as he was going through college, he started bringing outdoor gear over to, and he'd sell it at the colleges to pay for college to put himself through school. Mm -hmm. Um, and eventually he, he, he found a need at one of the local ski resorts he, he was an outdoor person. He skied, he snowmobiled, you know, hunted. I mean, he did a little mm-hmm. bit of everything. Um, but one of the local ski resorts, he noticed that all of their jackets were tore on the front. And the reason mm-hmm. for it was they had these big snowmaking machines and they had big hoses that supplied the water to the snowmaking machines. And those hoses would get brittle and they would crack. And so they would put these big hose clamps on the end to repair them. And those hose clamps is they would, they grab those hoses and they'd pull and that hose clamp would slice the front of their jacket. And so he realized he could, you know, I could build a jacket with some Kevlar or whatever on it that's not going to do that. And so he pitched this to the ski resorts. And they loved it and they bought them and they bought a few and then they decided to buy a few more. And so Justin kind of started making these like out of his apartment or whatever and bought a couple of old sewing machines from the, the local North Face factory that was going out of business. And he started building these custom jackets and over time, I think it was a year or so, one of the bigger ski resorts down there made a big order, like 250 jackets. And so Justin, you know, called kids, don't, not a ton of money, but figured out a way to buy some raw materials. And, and, uh, and he started working on getting all the materials to build these jackets. Well, through the course of that, of getting the materials and getting ready to build them, that ski resort actually went out of business. Oh, and so okay. now he's invested every dime he's got into you know bringing fabric in, getting people so they can sew, and and now he's got no place for these jackets to go. So throughout throughout some connections that he had in the industry, in fact, my old boss at SLP, I think they kind of had some conversations that hey, there's a niche here that's not really being explored for some high end premium snowmobile jackets. Nobody really makes one, especially for the mountain mm-hmm. segment. Okay. So they threw some stuff together that they, they thought would be a good jacket for the mountain riders. And they went to the Salt Lake show with a couple of samples and just with a little 10 by 10 booth and kind of started pitching it. And they took some pre-orders for, from some consumers there. And so they came back and built them with the fabric that they had. And they got a few more orders and, you know, they went to a few more shows. And by the time the year was over, they they were building snowmobile jackets. And, and it was a premium, high-end market that really nobody had tried to be in that space at the time, you mm-hmm. know, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so 
as as he realized that opportunity was pretty big, he, you know, he started to expand and wanted to build some more jackets and, uh, you know, tried to get some money backing and a few things, but <clears throat> it developed into the Climb brand and, uh, you know, the rest is history. So that's a it's a fascinating story like just the like a a real opportunistic guy like it just proves that there's there's markets and there's product ideas in front of you every day you just gotta you just gotta keep your eyes open like something as simple as ripped jackets at a ski resort like that's just wild yeah and the opportunity could be right in front of you but if you're not looking for it you know and mm-hmm. you don't recognize the potential and then it, it and nothing happens but he saw he saw that there was definitely an opportunity for a premium piece that nobody had, nobody was, was offering at the time. And it, and it, those niche markets, mm-hmm. you know, you take advantage of it and it grows fast. I was going to ask if there was like a, a specific product that really put climb on the map, but it sounds like it really was the, the jackets. Like that was the heart of the business at the beginning. And that's really what drove a lot of growth. You, it was, but I think, you know, over time we've had specific products that have really elevated us kind of to the next point in our growth curve. But I think the biggest part of what helped him make that business successful was his relationship with Gore-Tex because Gore-Tex was a premium mm-hmm. company that offered premium products and, and the outdoor industry was way ahead of the snowmobile industry. The outdoor industry had premium products. They had premium fabrics. Gore-Tex was a big part of that, but nobody in the snowmobile industry had really implemented that. And so Justin going and, and, and building a relationship with Gore-Tex and convincing them that what he was going to do was going to be successful. And this, this market had a lot of opportunity. Um, Gore-Tex doesn't give out hardly any licenses. In fact, I believe one mm-hmm. of the OEMs had that license at the time and Justin convinced them that what he was going to do had more potential and he was mm-hmm. able to get his hands on that license in the power sports industry. And so once we had that Gore-Tex relationship, that really helped accelerate our technology in that premium product line development. They have some, some testing facilities and just some things that allow us to develop um, the product quicker and, and ensure the quality and, and have the lifetime warranty that Gore-Tex offers. And so I think the biggest thing for, for climb is in, in our history was the development of our, our relationship with Gore-Tex and having that product line. Yeah. At least in my eyes and, you know, maybe fast forward 20 years and maybe that partnership's no longer, but climb will always be synonymous with Gore-Tex. Like the, the, the branding just goes hand in hand in, in my eyes. I always think of them just hand in hand. Yeah. The partnership is very healthy. We still are heavily involved with Gore-Tex and, um, they're a big part of our business. Uh, it's what's helped us develop the quality and the reputation for quality that we have and helped us develop some of the technologies that we use now. And, and, you know, as we grow, we're always looking for the latest technology and who knows, I think Gore-Tex will probably always be a part of that, but, but we owe it to our customers to be exploring whatever options are out there. And there's things that we're playing mm-hmm. with now, um, that'll continue to elevate the product that may or may not be, you know, a Gore-Tex piece, but yeah, I think you'll always see us have a good relationship with Gore-Tex and, and be involved with, with their technologies. 
So we know climb in the snow world. I mean, this is a snowmobile podcast, but a big part of your product offering these days, and it's it's no secret to anybody else that the off-road business is bigger than the than the snow business. At least I hope it's not a secret. But for you guys, like when did the off-road side of climb kind of come into play? No, you're right. The off-road, the potential for off-road sales is much bigger than snow. I mean, the snow belt is a very small part of the, you know, the country, North America, but the motorcycle opportunity, I mean, you can ride a motorcycle anywhere in the world, pretty much, you know, most of the year. And so just simply by geography, there's a much more potential for motorcycles and off-road, but, you know, Justin, as he continued on kind of trying to find these niche markets and the things that he was passionate about, he liked riding motorcycles and he really wanted to offer a premium off-road piece. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't working at climb at the time, but we were riding a lot together. And I remember one particular spring, we took a trip down to Moab, a group of guys to ride dirt bikes down there. And he pulled out of the, the, the truck, a fresh batch of prototype off-road riding pants and jerseys. And I think this was around 2004, if I remember right. Um, And so we all, you know, we tried them on and we were going to test them. And I think this was like right before he was going to production with it or, or he just started production, but it was funny because I'm six, three and it it was all a little short for me. Right. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. I became the, the tall test model uh, to build the tall pants. Uh, I was the guy that was tall enough to be that, that the model for that. Um, but it was, he was, I think the first, one of the first people to develop and offer a really high end premium off-road piece. There was a couple other companies. I think MSR had some stuff at the time. And, um, but you know, for him to be a passionate off-road guy and all of us that rode with him, passionate off-road people, he had a, he had a good surrounding of people that could help test and develop the product. Um, and, and it was really, he just wanted to have better stuff for him to ride in. You know, it's like, if I'm going to mm-hmm. do this, I'm, and I think I can do a better job, well, let's, let's build it. And, uh, he wanted to have a better riding experience and be more comfortable. And he knew that, that he had the tools to do it. And so we did it. Yeah, this past summer, uh, it's actually my first summer ever wearing climb on the on the off-road side. I uh, spent many years wearing a certain uh, certain other brand that makes moto gear based in the city of Boise. Well, I won't say who okay. they are, but yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I uh, I gave a, a try to the the XC light line and then the helmet as well, and it's I was extremely impressed. Like very very light breathes really well. And I'm a, I'm a hair scramble guy. So in the woods, oh, cool. it's hot. And yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. I was extremely impressed with the off-road line. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because one of the biggest factors for us, the first helmet we ever built was that F4 and the whole purpose behind it was to make a helmet that ventilated better than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause sometimes when we're mountain riding, we're not moving very fast, we're working hard, you know, single track trails, exactly. rocky, stumpy, you know, steep stuff and it's 95 degrees out or whatever. And I, I think it can be similar for the Midwestern riding and, yep, you know, you're just working up a sweat. And so one of the, again, a niche market, you know, a, a, a thing that he felt like he could do to make the experience better was provide more ventilation. So the F4 was our first version of that. And then we've moved on to the F3 and the F5 and some other things that are the, the very best ventilated helmets on the market. Um, so yeah, 
solve a problem and, and, and make the rider more comfortable. If you had to throw a percentage on it, a rough guesstimate percentage, what do you guys think your business is snow versus, versus off-road? Well, we actually keep pretty, we track that stuff pretty close and we have meetings all the time where we're kind of evaluating how our sales are and which segments and, you know, where can we be better and what can we do better? And the snow category has been the main revenue producer for years and our off-road and specifically our motorcycle segments have really grown at a much higher rate over the last three or four years to the point where they've pretty much caught snow. Um, when we mm -hmm. ended the season last physical year, we were still selling, uh, the revenue was still higher in snow than motorcycle, but the honest truth is our, our motorcycle category is growing faster. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because there's more open space. There's more white space. You know, yeah. it's a bigger, it's a bigger mm -hmm. segment. Europe especially is growing for us at a crazy, crazy rate, which is awesome our European team is doing a fantastic job. So I don't think there's any avoiding it. If, you know, for us snow guys, we know the motorcycle team's doing a great job and it's going to, it's going to surpass the snow team. And, and I think that's okay. I think, uh, mm -hmm. as a, as a group, it's good for the, it's good for the business. It's good for the company. Um, and we push each other too. this, you know, where there's a mm -hmm. little friendly competition with inside the building, you know, as far as who's trying to outsell the other, the other team, so to speak, but we're, Really, we're all on the same team, and it's it's fun to see the growth. Uh, but yeah, snow is uh, snow still the revenue leader right now. <laughs> I love to hear that. I love to hear that. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> what's what's, uh, what's the best selling product you think you guys have from a from a volume standpoint? Well, that's again, that's kind of changed over the growth curve of the company. I think probably one of the most consistent ones, though, is our boots. Uh, the adrenaline oh, yeah. boot has been the most consistent gross, you know, both revenue and volume piece that we've had over the last 10 years. It's usually in the top three uh, pieces for revenue. The adrenaline boots kind of become, I, in my opinion, the standard for snowmobile boot. Uh, an active rider snowmobile boot and um this year we we i don't we didn't want to change it because it just was such a solid piece and had a good reputation mm -hmm. but this year we finally went through a full redesign and we spent two or three years testing it to make sure you know like we don't want to mess this up i mean we if we're going to come out with something it has to be better uh and and we're i'm really pleased i got to ride it all year last year and it's it's a little more durable and it's a little more comfortable and you got a little bit better traction. So we were able to kind of improve on almost every aspect. So yeah, I'd say the boot is one of the big ones. Backpacks is a big one for us. Yeah. Uh, we move yeah. a lot of backpacks. Um, you know, we move a lot of gloves. So there's, there's some consistent high performance or performers there for us, but boots is probably a, the highest, most consistent. It is kind of funny. I feel like boots, at least on the consumer side, it's kind of like, it's kind of like an afterthought because you almost you never look at them. It's never on people's minds. But but boots and gloves can make or break anybody's riding experience. So it's like a it's an extremely underrated uh, piece of piece of gear. Well, it's generally the first thing to get cold. 
your yep. toes and your hands are usually the first thing to get cold and wet is if, if you're wet, you're going to be cold. That's all there is to it. So I think people are, or a little bit more willing to spend more money in those areas, knowing that, you know, I've, I've got to keep my feet from getting wet and I've got to keep my hands from getting wet. Um, and of course the Gore-Tex name means dry. So I think that has a lot to do with why our, those sales for us are, are consistently good. So I mentioned earlier, Dustin, you've held kind of various roles within climb over your, over your tenure there. And, and one of them, you, you manage the athlete kind of ambassador sponsorship side. So I want to kind of pick your brain on that stuff a little bit. Cause that's always, that's always intrigued me, but you know, I have kind of a, I, I grew up racing snowcross and stuff like that. So obviously, you know, racers are very, our mentality is always somebody should sponsor us. We move product blah, 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 blah. But from your side, where would you rank kind of brand ambassadors slash sponsored riders in terms of, of overall importance in a, in a marketing strategy or a brand strategy? You know, that's a really good question. And the reason, the reason I feel like it's a good question is because marketing has changed a lot in the last, you know, four five, six years, the digital age has We've had to adapt and it's, and it's changed fast. Um, social media has changed it. And I think what a lot of the OEMs and, and the, the producers in the snow segment and even the power sports industry in general have realized is we've got this entire social media network of third party voices. Mm-hmm. So, all right, if client puts out an advertisement it's biased, you know, because Climb's trying to pitch something, you know, insert whatever name, Polaris, Skidoo, Cat, doesn't matter. Um, but if I've got an ambassador out there who, you know, they've got some influence, they've got some followers, they're involved in clubs or dealership levels or whatever that might be, they're just a passionate person. They love to ride. Mm-hmm. You know, they're a little, maybe they're outspoken or they represent themselves well, but it's not necessarily viewed as biased. And so that third party yep. opinion is i think valued very heavily on people's purchases um and in a way i think that's kind of magazines are a similar way Uh, you know Mm -hmm. who's a third party that's not biased that's gonna just shoot me straight you know that's gonna give it to me straight not bs me you know not making an advertisement but they're just gonna call it the way it is and so Ambassadors, professional athletes, a lot of times are maybe a more trusted source. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, take a guy like Chris Brand. Mm-hmm. M- people know that he's a, a factory climb sponsored athlete, and we have a really good relationship with him. And 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 that's you can choose to look at it like, oh, well, he's just saying it because they're making it, but making him. But but I think what most people see with Chris is he's a pretty transparent guy and he kind of calls a spade a spade and yeah, it's his job to promote our product, but I've had lots of conversations with him. He's like, dude, I just don't wear that. And I don't really want to promote it because I don't wear it. And so mm-hmm. he's good at keeping things real and, and consumers can see that. And so we appreciate that from him. And I think there's a lot of value from him. And, and I, we've got a lot of other athletes and, and professionals there's the same way. I'm, I'm using Chris as one example, but, you know, you could insert Dan Adams, you could insert Matt Adams, you could insert Andy Thomas, you could insert Keith Kerr. I mean, any of these guys 
and gals, you know, we've got Gloria up in Canada and we've got Carrie Barr and we've got Shelly and, and all these, I could just keep going and going, but they're, they're just going to call Usually they call it what it is. And so mm-hmm. we want consumers to trust them and we want them to feel comfortable with, with the communication that's be that's coming from these third party people. So I personally value them as one of the most effective communication tools that we have. Um, because I feel like that, that third party voice is respected more than just about any form of advertising out there. And I feel like at the same time, and, and I'll use Chris Barant again, he's an extreme example, but I'll use him again. A guy like that or any of your top hill climb riders, they could, in a lot of ways, they could, they could get help from any gear company they wanted. They're, they're at that elite level where they could probably get support from anybody. But time and time again, they say, no, I'm, I'd like to run climb. I, I feel comfortable in it. I like the feedback. Like there's a lot there that they choose to come back to the brand time and time again. Well, and, and you're hundred percent right. And, and the cool thing about, this is one of the awesome parts about my role is these bat, you know, these, these behind the scenes conversations that I get to have with these guys and, and they're all these guys and gals, they're honest. I, I love the fact that they can tell me what they like and what they don't. But I mean, there's been opportunities for some of these people to maybe they've been offered more money or, or, or whatnot from a, a competing brand. And what I constantly hear from them is I just don't want to ride in that stuff. Exactly. I, I mean, I'm riding every day. Like I want to be comfortable and maybe somebody will pay me a little bit more or whatever. I, you know, I mean, but, but at the end of the day, they just don't want to ride in it. And <laughs> so I, in a way it makes my job easier because I feel like part of the value that we're offering those partners is, is the product it's, it, you know, they're valuing the product as much as they are the relationship and, and whatever contract we have with them. And I don't think my perception from talking to some other athletes is there's really not any other brand that has that. I, I could be wrong, but I, you know, I've been fortunate to work with some of these athletes for 15 years. I did, I was, I had relationships with a lot of these people when I worked at SLP, I, I kind of managed our race program there as well. And so, you know, over time, they just, they're competitive. They want good stuff. And they're like every other consumer out there. They, they want to get the best value and, and be represented well and enjoy the experience. And they don't, they don't want to ride in stuff that's going to fall apart or, or let them get dry or, or, I mean, get wet. And so I, I feel like we're pretty fortunate with the product line we have and the relationships we've been able to build from offering that to these athletes. And they, they, they value that as well. Another thing I'm kind of curious about is, you know, there's a bit of a dichotomy between the different segments in snowmobiling of like what, what you're hoping for or how you want to promote the product. Like I look at the, the snowcross guys and there's, there's television packages, there's race results. And even for some of the hill climb guys, there's that as well. But for the mountain guys, it's just social content and magazine ads and things like that. Like that's, those are the different ways you have to promote the product in those different segments. From your standpoint, how do you have to approach your expectations differently for a guy who's 
a free ride guy versus a snow cross guy? Like, how do you approach it of, of what you want from them of like, what is well, a good deliverable? It's the thing that I think we take into consideration there is I think most snowmobilers aspire to be, to ride in the West. You can mm-hmm. take your Midwestern guys, you can take your Eastern guys, gals, you know, your trail riders, your ditch bangers, your, 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 you know, the people that ride the UP, your cross country riders that will run up in Quebec. If you ask any of them, almost all of them would say, I would love to ride out West. I would love to ride in the mountains. And so I, I, I think we know that the majority of the market, it's an aspirational thing, right? And so from, from mm-hmm. when we create our imagery and we create our content, a lot of that is geared towards helping riders realize their aspirations and know that, Hey, we build, we can help them with this experience. We can help you achieve this experience of, of riding in the West or riding in the mountains, or maybe you're not, maybe you're riding in, you know, in New York, Tug Hill or something like that, but there might be a spot where you can get off the trail. Like they want to experience what mountain guys see and, even some of the snowcross teams I've ridden with and, and been able to interact, like if they have a week off and, and they can figure out a way to come out and ride out here, they want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we know that the consumers, they aspire to be a fast snowcross guy. They aspire to be, you know, to be able to ride that way or see those views or experience that terrain. And so uh, we value those teams, those snowcross teams, and we value, you know, our, our backcountry athletes and our hill climb athletes because they're painting the picture of what most consumers want to do. Um, and I think, you know, as far as, you know, I don't remember if the word you used was, was accountability or, or exactly how you phrased it. But, you know, for most of them, we just want them to be transparent. In, in what it's mm-hmm. like to live that lifestyle. We don't, we don't want it to be fake. We, we want them to paint a picture of what it's really like um, and how other people can experience that too. And so the snowcross guys, what's it like to be on a pro team? What's it like to go racing every weekend? What, how do you practice? How do you, what's your daily routine like? What, what, what's it like when you're lining up for a, a pro final, you know, and, and, and the teams, you know, we want them to portray that to consumers and, and same thing with mountain people, you know, what work are you doing to your sled? What are you doing aftermarket stuff? Where are you going? Who are you riding with? It's, that's all the things that I think most consumers are interested to see because they may or not be able to do that. Um, mm-hmm. if they are, they want to know how, how that other person's doing it, how that professional athlete's doing it. But if they're not, they hope to someday. And so, mm-hmm. I, that was kind of a long explanation. I hope that kind of answered your question, but I, but I think it's, it's really about that aspirational. Like I said, when I was a kid, I really want to be able to be that guy in the photo someday when I grow up. And I think that's the way most consumers are. They want to ride. And they can, they can see right through it. If it's not genuine, like if the content or what they're saying, the, the consumers can see right through it. Yeah. Yeah. They can. Yep. For sure. Reality TV wasn't very real for a lot of people. It kind of got to be just drama, right? And so for us, it's like, don't make drama. Just make fun. Just just show mm-hmm. consumers how to have fun. 100%. 100%. 
So I want to switch over to some topics, just general apparel business, because you know you spent time as an RSM for Climb as well. I mean, you've you've moved around a lot within Climb, so you got a quite a big background, some experience. So there's a lot to talk about, but just the apparel space in general. I mean, it's it's extremely competitive, and you kind of touched on this a little bit with the with just the quality side of Climb. But how does Climb kind of separate itself when you're going into a dealership and you're trying to sell to the parts guy like how do you how do you differentiate between climb and some of your competitors well i think there's really two different ways to look at that there's the business case if you're dealing with your dealerships but then there's also there's the the retail sales end if you're if you're dealing with the consumers how to can why how to convince mm-hmm. a consumer that your product's better versus how to convince a dealer that your product's better and what motiv- motivates them to choose your brand is slightly different sometimes um, mm-hmm. the business case for the dealers is, is revenue. How can we help their dealership be successful? What is our brand going to bring to the table that maybe somebody else doesn't? And, and it's, it's pretty simple, really. It's, it's, we've been able to build a brand with some horsepower that has a, has a, uh, a repu- a good reputation that consumers desire. They'll go find it. Um, and, and if maybe someone's not familiar with our brand when they walk into a dealership, we try to give the dealership the tools. We try to take the time to educate them, get them up to speed on the product, and, and let them know why our product is different. And I don't know if we have time to really go into that on this call today, but by the time we're done usually working with the dealership and getting their staff up to speed, they're so confident that they, they've been able to, they, they know how to tell the difference between quality gear and, and not. Um, mm-hmm. They know, they understand, you know, if they're commission-based, hey, I, I, this is a premium piece. I can probably make more money from this, right? And so mm-hmm. not only is the consumer going to be happier with their purchase, but this is a win-win for everybody. Dealer makes better money. Salesman makes better money. Climb does good. Consumer loves the product. It lasts them a long time. It's a better value because it lasts them a long time. They might spend more money to begin with, but the experience is going to be better. They're going to be dry. It's it might, you know it might it's going to outperform the other pieces from the competition. It's going to outlast the pieces from the competition. And so when you start adding all that up, it truly is a better value. You're getting a better bang for your buck. And once consumer or once salespeople can see that and they start to get a little bit of experience with that and they see some success, they become more excited and, you know, it just drives that confidence. And so on a dealer level, uh, dealers have learned that Climb offers the whole package from helmets to goggles to, to boots, you know, if it's on the snow side, I mean, you know, Avi gear, like, they can, there's, there's a one-stop shop to provide everything that their consumer needs. And it's all going to be mm-hmm. premium pieces. So they don't have to worry about the quality um, versus other brands may not offer, you know, a number of those pieces or some of it's good, some of it's not. And, you know, what are the margins like? Can I make as much money? And so once those dealers realize that they're willing to invest more, they're willing to bring more inventory in, they'll, they'll expand their climb offering and their climb section within that dealership. And, and it just, it's kind of that snowball effect where they, you know, they start to make more money and the sales guys make more money and more consumers are happy because of the product they're buying. And, and just, we've built that reputation. Um, and, and on a retail level, you know, just specifically speaking to the consumer, we have to, we have to help them understand what the, why the, 
the value is better. Yes, your initial entry mm -hmm. cost might be higher, but the experience is going to be better. You've got your lifetime warranty. It's guaranteed to keep you dry. The performance is going to be better because, you know, we've got all these athletes helping us develop product and we at Klein, we all ride as well. So we want the product mm -hmm. to work well for us while we're riding. And so I, I just think that, you know, we offer the whole gamut to where the consumers have realized that that experience is going to be better and the value is going to be better. So ho hopefully that all kind of explains both sides of that. <laughs> no, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I had a bunch of points in here and you covered a bunch of them. Cause yeah, it's, it's oh, good. <laughs> apparel's uh, yeah, no, it's apparel is extremely competitive. And I mean, I've worked at dealerships and you're dealing with, with, you know, five different distributor catalogs and they all have their own house brands and then all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's tough to kind of, it's tough to kind of set yourself apart from the, from the Joe Blow gear brand that's in XYZ distributors catalog that everybody has, you know? So it is for um, sure. And, de yep. and, de and definitely educating the, the parts people on your gear and why your gear is better or, or the different selling points. That's a, that's a task in itself. So um, I really admire the, the commitment to that. That that's one of the, I mean, kind of diving into the weeds of the business a little bit, but Justin was pretty wise in the way he set this business up. We had distributors wanting to carry our product in their, in their catalog and Justin didn't do it. He wanted to be a dealer direct business and, and he wanted to be able to control the distribution, the pricing, our map policies. Uh, he had a, he had an understanding of how important that was to control your brand strength. Uh, and so when our reps walk into a dealership, they're only focused on climb and they offer a better mm -hmm. service to the dealership because they're better at educating the consumer. They don't have to try to educate on 30 different brands. They can just educate on climb yep. and you know, they're better at helping put together merchandise plans. And, and I'm not saying those other competitors don't have good people there because they obviously do. And, and, and I respect, you know, I have good relationships with a lot of our competitors and some of those brands, but unfortunately they have to represent a lot of different brands. If it's, you it's know, a 500 page catalog and they exactly, have to know it all. Yeah, so it's a tough <laughs> job. Like I, I think mm -hmm. they do a great job with what they have, but our, our reps, our team, are definitely laser focused and it and it's an advantage there's no question what do you think the most challenging part of selling in the apparel space is because i just think of like you know when you're dealing with different sizes and skew count and then seasonality like what's the most challenging part in your eyes um well specifically to our brand i would say uh, a, a couple of things, staying ahead, being the, the offering the latest technology, being, being innovators in the space, it takes a mm -hmm. lot of work. Um, yep. I mean, we have an entire team that does nothing but play with developing and, and creating new fabrics. And mm -hmm. I mean, last year we had 50 or 60 sets of bibs floating around on people testing that had one leg with one garment and another leg with another fabric trying to get, <laughs> you know, side by side. And they didn't know what they were wearing. We're just like, Hey, these are different. We're not going to tell you how, you know, give us some real world feedback. And so I think the biggest thing is probably, you know, the continual push to offer the latest technology. But then I think a very close second to that is 
is inventory management and understanding mm -hmm. how to keep dealers strong. A strong dealer mm -hmm. is going to be your best partner. Um, if you overload mm -hmm. a dealer, that, that, that hurts partnerships. And so we've seen mm -hmm. that happen time and time and time, year and year and year. They get overloaded with, you know, it becomes non-current inventory. And, and for us, we don't want them to have to have them. I mean, we want them to be strong. We want them to be able to move through their inventory, hold retail prices, you know, maximize profits. That's better for the consumer. So I, I think, yeah, between, you know, driving innovation and managing inventory and that brand strength are probably the two toughest part, at least the things that we really focus on for our brand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, I think all brands are, are kind of feeling that heat right now because dealers have a lot of inventory right now. It's uh <laughs> It's not a fun yeah, time with the power there's a lot of non right now. inventory out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then the third thing too is snow. If it's a snow, you know, motorcycle not such yeah. a problem, but if you have a bad snow year, that's it makes sailing harder. You know, people if they're mm -hmm. only going to get to put one or two hundred miles on their sled because they don't have snow, that really affects people's motivation to purchase accessories. Um, mm -hmm. you know, parts, garments, and accessories, and and the next season it affects their desire to purchase a new sled if they didn't get very many miles on them you know so it's kind of this again it's this snowball effect where a bad year of snow can sometimes take three years to correct the inventory levels um so the snow market has to be super reactive to that where the motorcycle mm -hmm. and the off-road markets i mean three quarters of the world has places to ride you know 12 months out of the year so it's less susceptible to weather um, affecting sales. Yeah, I used to uh, I used to work for an oil manufacturer that made a lot of snowmobile oils, and and every year if it was a bad winter, the the preseason booking for snow would be way down, and you you could see it coming from a mile away. So it's I, uh, it's unfortunate we deal with it every year. Am I allowed to guess who it was? Uh, we no, can take okay. that one offline. Okay, we'll do that offline. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. No, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, in your eyes, what's kind of the next great, uh, next great frontier in apparel or protective wear uh, for Climb? What's the next big thing that you're going to be exploring? Uh, you know, I... that one's a little bit of a tough one to navigate because I you know, knowing the direction we're going without giving, you know, too much away. But I, I think, I think, you know, for us, we kind of have this saying inside the building, lighter, faster, stronger. How can we make the mm -hmm. product lighter? How can we make it, make, make the consumer more comfortable? How can we, you know, make it more durable without sacrificing, you know, we could make a bulletproof suit, but nobody'd want to wear it because it'd be too heavy, right? So how do you make something mm -hmm. that's strong, but light? Um, I think, you know, technology is advancing fabrics and we're, we're learning how to keep consumers warmer with thinner fabrics and less insulation and things like that. So we'll, we'll continue to see that evolve. Um, but I think the innovation of smart devices, mm -hmm. um, I would guess that we're going to really see that work its way into 
more into the power sports market in general. Obviously, we're seeing it with gauges, you know, a 7S gauge and, you know, cat release their 8-inch gauge and Skidoo's got their big 12-inch gauge. And, you know, we're seeing what technologies come into GoPros and phones and transceivers and Abbey bags and all this stuff. And I think that you're going to see a rapid increase of development with how those things affect apparel. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there's, there's things being developed, right? And I mean, you know, smart helmets, we're seeing some companies come up with that stuff. So I think, I think electronics are going to be a big part of the evolution of apparel. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think the other thing is safety. Europe is really pushing safety standards. If you're talking motorcycle products, you know, trip double A, triple A, you know, they're mandating safety tests that motorcycle apparel has to pass or you can't sell it. Um, that wasn't the case just five years ago. Uh, obviously, there's been safety standards for helmets forever. Those are continuing to get uh, to, to be elevated. We had, you know, uh, ECE 2205. We got ECE 2206 now. And it's just the safety standards are continuing to elevate. And the apparel manufacturers are having to improve and use more technology to meet those standards. And so, yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of it's going to be electronic based, um, you know, smart device based and then and then safety based, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, integrating technologies into those segments. So let's touch on some kind of snowmobile industry topics in general. I kind of want to pick your brain on a little bit because. You know, I live in Minneapolis now, but I grew up in New England. There's a lot of similarities in just like, just, you know, it's hit or miss with snow conditions. Every year, everybody's crying that there's no snow and the the, the snowmobile industry is dying and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, the the silver lining, the the golden light is always the West. You guys always have snow. Like, what's the what's the mountain scene looking like for you guys right now? Like, how's the outlook I think, well, I think we've, we, we've seen a representation of that in the types of snowmobiles that are being sold, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's more snow, mountain snowmobiles sold now than I think almost anything. Um, if, you, if you look yep. at, I know the OEMs don't print a lot of this data, but as a magazine group, we've, we've seen some of it. We've been privy to it. Um, Mountain snowmobile sales have grown exponentially over the past 10 to 12 years. And you've got mm -hmm. people riding the UP and they're riding a mountain sled in the UP. And you've got people that want to, you know, they come out West once a year, twice a year, and they'll buy a mountain sled and put up with it, you know, not working well on the trail or down the ditch so that they can have it in the mountains. And so we've, we've seen the data show us that, that people want a mountain ride. And I, and I think, uh, the biggest challenges we're going to have from that are twofold. One is, is, uh, access to lands, riding areas, that stuff's mm -hmm. being threatened by, on a number of levels, by a number of groups, you know, outside influencing groups to government decisions. And then also, you know, government entities that aren't as supportive, maybe to motorized users. And I'm, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I mean, I think there's some that really are and there's some that really aren't, but the power sports industry as a whole doesn't do a very good job of advocating for ourselves. We don't do a very good job <laughs> of 
of protecting our our rights and our privileges and consequently there's a lot of environmental groups out there that have a lot of money and they've got paid staff and they've got lots of donations and people who donate because it makes them feel good and and then they come and they they attack our riding areas um mm -hmm. that's a big threat and i think we're going to see in the future that's probably going to get worse um you know mm -hmm. with with you know the whole electric movement and uh you know regular regulations on clean air and and sound and all these things you know we've got people making super loud exhausts that are that are not helping and I, I just think, you know, we see it in the West more, more because we still have a lot of open land and we're, mm -hmm. we're consistently, because we live here, we're consistently fighting to try to keep it open. But then you've got people from the Midwest and the East who they're not necessarily involved because they don't live in that area and they don't see it and constant, but they, but they still want to come out and ride. And so we as a power sports industry have got to do a better job of banding together, creating funds to fight some of these battles, aligning with our government agencies to let them know how we want to use our lands, you know, writing letters, being involved in the feedback processes. Because if we don't, they're slowly chipping away at our writing areas. And eventually we're going to look back mm -hmm. and go, ah, crap, I sure liked writing there. I wish I could go back. And history kind of says that once we lose an area, we never get it back. Um, so that's that's one of my big concerns uh, mm -hmm. that I think we need to be aware of. And then the second is, is avalanches. Mm -hmm. um, we we've seen an increase in motorized access to to more avalanche prone areas, and people are taking more risks because the snowmobiles are more capable. It's easier for them to get there. And we have a lot of, of consumers coming from the Midwest and the East who may not have the opportunity to get the proper education. They only get to come out for one week. It's hard, you know, they don't want to spend that week doing AVI training or they don't know that those options are available to them. And so consequently, it's very easy for them to put themselves in a bad situation that they don't even know they're doing. Um, mm -hmm we as an industry have to do a better job of, of making riders aware of what the risks are. And then if those riders are already aware, we need to do a better job of helping them know what the resources are to get the education. Um, and I feel mm -hmm. like it, as much as we have a risk of losing riding areas because of environmental pressure, I also think there's a risk of losing riding areas because of safety. Mm -hmm. I can see a day where, well, we're already seeing it where we get pressure to shut areas down because just purely riders not making good decisions and, and someone dying in an avalanche or avalanche, you know, tragedies and things like that. So, you know, motorized users, we've got to elevate ourselves. We have to do a better job of educating ourselves. We've got to do a better job of fighting for our, our privileges and, and, um, I'm not really sure exactly what the answer to do that is. We're trying, you know, the Avalanche Alliance is working really hard on the Avalanche side of things. And there's, there's other groups out there like AMPL, Blue Ribbon Coalition. I mean, there's lots of groups that are trying to fight for our riding areas and we need to be more active and involved in those. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the loss of riding area, just it, 
it kind of hits home for me a little bit just you know living in minneapolis it doesn't seem like as much of a problem like the the trails here aren't as bad but as i mentioned i grew up in vermont and like basically the entire vermont trail system is all on private land there's very little of it that's on public land and every single year like you can never look at the map year to year and it'd be the same because somebody went off trail they carved up some guy's field and then he shut down the trail and said no more trail through my field and every yeah. single year the trails get rerouted all these different ways and we even saw it a couple of years ago where um i can't remember the trail name but in the up there was a major corridor between two segments that got shut down and it like threw off the entire trail network in the state of michigan because of that, that was the one where the and ski it, resort came in and shut down that little piece of trail right yep yeah yep. that one's exactly. and i guess that one's still a hot topic from what i understand mm -hmm. yeah exactly so like you know we look at the the mountain segment where it's it's different zones or different areas getting shut off from environmental groups and whatnot but even the guys that or just riding local trails that might think it doesn't affect them. It's just as big as an issue for those guys. Yeah, you're you're 100 right. And I, you know, my my comments were focused more on the mountainside. But but as much mm -hmm. attention needs to be given to the trail systems and 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 people being involved with their clubs and supporting the clubs mm -hmm. and the, and the groomer operators and and the stewardship of taking care of those trails because even though I don't live there, you know, being involved in some of the media things, you know, and, and the OEMs launched a big campaign last year to protect our right for trails and, and respecting people's private land. And I understand why the OEMs did that. It was a really smart move on their part because we're not going to sell snowmobiles and snowmobile gear if there's no place to ride. Mm -hmm. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm glad you, you brought that point up because in the East and the Midwest, I mean, protecting our trail systems, and respecting private property, sound ordinances, and things like that is just as important as fighting for our Forest Service ground and our rights out here in the mountains. Yeah, it's it's all equally important to be involved. For sure. In your eyes, at least, what what's the most intriguing thing from from the OEMs lately that have you excited? Whether it's it's tech or different segments, like what are you what are you excited about for slides right now? So. I think with what the technology we have with existing right now, it's factory turbos. And, and that's a big one for me because, you know, I worked at 18 years at SLP and we were, you know, I think for a long time, we were the innovators, some of the innovators with aftermarket products and we built race motors and, you know, we were constantly trying to, to build horsepower and performance. And, uh, but the big thing that we, we always speculated on was a factory turbo because the technology just when I was at SLP just wasn't quite there. There was, there was aftermarket people doing it. And I think they were learning a lot and they were progressing and they were, they were making them more reliable and less finicky. But mm -hmm. the big question was always, all right, are any of these OEMs going to come out with a factory turbo? Oh no, they can't meet the emission standard. They're never going to do that. You know, Oh no, they, they can't do it. It'll make the insurance too high. And it was awesome to see a factory turbo hit the market because it was just such a game changer. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's one of the biggest things right now. Um, you know, suspension and handling uh, chassis have changed a lot over the last 10 years. I mean, if you look at, you know, Articat kind of was the first one with the, you know, mountain specific chassis in the M7 and 
Skidoo, you know, the mm-hmm. rider forward with the, with the Rev and, you know, Polaris with the Pro with the Axis chassis and super lightweight and pulling, you know, a bunch of weight off of things. And I mean, you, we've seen these innovations of the rider experience and how they interact with the chassis and the user friendliness of the chassis and, you know, making it easier, less effort to ride. And I think the next innovations we're going to see here are going to be you know, again, some of that smart technology integrating snow machines into into making a better interactive experience with the consumer. And then it's it's going to be chassis and handling related. We've already got enough horsepower. I don't know that we're going to need. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure they're going to make more power, but I, they could be making that power now if they really wanted to. They're just choosing not to because of progression, right? And because of, mm-hmm. of, of having the next step. But you know, whether it's Skidoo coming out with a big bore, whether it's, you know, Polaris making a big bore boost. I mean, I think those things will come, but the big changes are probably going to be with chassis progression, suspension, you know, how we ride, are the sleds going to continue to get narrower? Are the tracks going to continue to get bigger? I, I think so. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see bigger tracks. Mm-hmm. We're going to see maybe a little narrower chassis. Um, and, uh, maybe taller sleds to clear those tracks. Um, Cause I think we really already have enough horsepower to do it. They're just going to try to make the user experience better. Yeah. And kind of to your point earlier about mountain sleds, like you it's, this is like a prime example. That's where you see all the, the new technology coming. It's, it's rarely on the trail sleds. It's always on the mountain sleds, the new, the new suspension, the high tech, the turbo, it's all on the mountain sleds that it comes on. Yeah, I mean to a point, but but I mean look at like look at the Mach Z and look at the look at the the start device that Skidoo put in this year, you know, the whole shot and mm-hmm. I mean there there's some stuff they're doing on that side too that's not necessarily trickling down. I mean, you know, smart shocks, you know, the mountain guys really don't have that. I mean Articat did it with the tag system, but there I would say mm-hmm. that there is some some specialized technology being applied to both segments and eventually it'll cross over to the other segment. But but uh, yeah, Mountain's definitely been the benefactor of some pretty cool developments and, and uh, technology changes over the last few years. For sure. So last two questions for you before we wrap right. it up. First right. first one. Any advice for any any young people? or anybody that just loves snowmobiles and they want to get into the power sports industry somehow, what's your, what's your advice to those people? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. That's, that's a little bit of a tough one because the industry's changed a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. it's kind of condensed, unfortunately. Um, the opportunities Mm -hmm. have, have been reduced. There's not nearly as many aftermarket companies. Um, you know, we're losing Yamaha next year in the snowmobile division or the snowmobile category, but power sports in general, motorcycles, things like that is still a really big industry. And there's a lot of opportunity. Um, I think you got to decide what you're passionate about. Is it development uh, or is it sales? You know, is it marketing? I think you need to decide how, where you want to sit in that space. And then you need to focus on, getting experience and education to go along with that. So that experience could come from working at a dealership while you're going through college, right? I'm working the sales floor. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm working the service department or, you know, maybe you're trying to get an OEM as a, 
get on a, as, with an OEM as an intern, but you're, you're making your decisions based off of what roles you want within that industry. And then you're getting the education and the experience to go along with it. And that means maybe starting at the bottom and, and mm-hmm. doing, you know, the route I took, which was, I washed bikes and then I worked parts and then I worked sales and then I was able to do some development and I just kept, you know, going through every door that, that would open in front of me and gaining that experience until I, until I had, you know, experience in, in a lot of different segments. But I think if you set the goals and you, and you, and you plot a plan uh, and you're, you're outgoing and you're professional and you're, and, and another thing I think that's really important is being a nice person. And I, and I know that sounds kind of cliche and almost dumb, but it seems like in this industry, you can elevate yourself if you get along with people really well. And, mm-hmm. and that's probably true for a lot of other industries, but learning, you know, learning to manage relationships, learning to get along with people, learning, learning to, to have a personality that people want to be around has a lot to do with progressing in this industry and, and, and progressing yourself. You know, I'm really glad you brought up the the dealership opportunities. So I think that gets overlooked a lot of times. People just think I need to go straight to an OEM or I need to go straight to an aftermarket brand and they just don't even consider working for a dealership. And there is, you know, I started as a parts guy, just like you, Dustin, like we're, we worked our way up, you know, slowly, but it's, it's a slow burn, but we made our way up. And the amount of things you learn from working on the floor at a dealership that, you know, will propel you up and make you understand all these different aspects of, of the industry, that stuff's invaluable when you finally start to progress, like knowing how, any decision you make, whether you're on the sales side or the engineering side, how that's going to trickle down to basically a dealership like that kind of understanding is, is invaluable. Yeah. You want, you want to be able to bring the table that experience and, and it, the things that it offers you is you start to see buying trends. You start to see how the customer reacts. You start to see, you get to, you can predict some things and you know, when it comes time to really try to get that, that core job that your goal, whatever goal you've set for yourself, if you can put on your resume, I've got this many years of experience in this industry. So I'm bringing that to the table. You, you know, let's say the decision comes to both, you both have the same degree and, 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 and you've both proven you can work hard and you're willing to learn and you can accept change and all those things. But yet you've, you've come from the sales floor and you've interacted with those consumers that, that, that's, that's your, that's your one foot up. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I've had to hire people and those are some of the things we've looked at and I've also had to get those jobs. And and those are some of the things that they looked at when they were considering me. So, um, Mm -hmm. you've, you've got to be flexible. You've, you've got to be, uh, you got to be able to handle change. You've got to be able to be willing to learn and, and, and it's probably just like any other industry really, but, but, but when it comes time to, to get that overall goal, you know, of a job that you've set, that industry experience is going to be important. For sure. For sure. Last one. And I hope it doesn't stump you should be pretty straightforward. Where's the best place for people to find information on climb for the listeners? Oh man, I'm going to have to do some homework. I, the first thing that comes <laughs> to my mind is www.climb.com. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, the website's got a ton of resources on it um, from product information to if you go to the bottom of the screen, there's a warranty tab you can click on if you need to start a warranty case to there's a career tab if you're interested in what jobs we have. You know, there's, you know, shipping information, return, like there's a bunch of information there, but overall product pages, those tabs are across the top. They're broken into segments, you know, snow, dirt, off-road, motorcycle lifestyle. Um, and so you can kind of filter down through there, but dealers, I mean, we have the best dealer network out there and they're full of a ton of educated people. And if you've got a dealer near you, that's a client dealer, I can almost guarantee you're going to find somebody there that's going to be able to answer your questions regarding client product. So yeah, work with your dealer too, because they do a great job. Yeah, definitely support your local dealers, people. The, yes. the e-com stuff is great. It's convenient, but support your local dealers. Yep. They are the backbone of the industry and we, we really need, uh, we really need them. We need to support them too. So yes, so, no, get to know your dealer. hundred percent. Well, thanks again, Dustin. We'll we'll wrap it up for you. Again, I, I really appreciate the time and I always love just just chatting with industry guys, whatever the topic is. So definitely fun to, to learn a lot about climb and then just kind of talk shop a little bit. So I, uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks again for the opportunity. I've enjoyed the conversation. It's been fun to chat through this stuff. Dustin Pankary on the Carbide Podcast. An industry guy through and through. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I love racing, as you can probably tell, but I love these industry chats maybe even a bit more. The amount of times I've had discussions like this at a trade show or a dealer show over the years. The power sports world is really small compared to other industries, and in my eyes at least, the more we can understand each other's perspectives, the more we can all succeed. A rising tide raises all ships, as they say. Thanks again to Dustin for the time. Really appreciate it. If you guys have made it this far, you rock. I appreciate everybody's support and all the messages I've gotten as of late. It means a lot. Be sure to check out the Facebook and Instagram pages for content related to the episodes. Tell your friends. And as always, take care. <laughs>